Section 18. Ingersoll's Lecture on Heretics and Heresies, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ingersoll's Lecture on Heretics and Heresies, Part 1, from the book Lectures of Colonel Robert Green Ingersoll, Volume 2. Liberty, a word without which all other words are in vain. Whoever has an opinion of his own and honestly expresses it will be guilty of heresy. Heresy is what the minority believe. It is a name given by the powerful to the doctrine of the weak. This word was born of the hatred, arrogance, and cruelty of those who love their enemies, and who, when smitten on one cheek, turn the other. This word was born of intellectual slavery in the feudal ages of thought. It was an epithet used in the place of argument. From the commencement of the Christian era, every art has been exhausted, and every conceivable punishment inflicted to force all people to hold the same religious opinions. This effort was born of the idea that a certain belief was necessary to the salvation of the soul. Christ taught, and the church still teaches, that unbelief is the blackest of crimes. God is supposed to hate, with an infinite and implacable hatred, every heretic upon the earth, and the heretics who have died are supposed at this moment to be suffering the agonies of the damned. The church persecutes the living, and her God burns the dead. It is claimed that God wrote a book called the Bible, and it is generally admitted that this book is somewhat difficult to understand. As long as the church had all the copies of this book, and the people were not allowed to read it, there was comparatively little heresy in the world. But when it was printed and read, people began honestly to differ as to its meaning. A few were independent and brave enough to give the world their real thoughts, and for the extermination of these men the church used all her power. Protestants and Catholics vied with each other in the work of enslaving the human mind. For ages they were rivals in the infamous effort to rid the earth of honest people. They infested every country, every city, town, hamlet, and family. They appealed to the worst passions of the human heart. They sowed the seeds of discord and hatred in every land. Brother denounced brother, wives informed against their husbands, mothers accused their children, Dungeons were crowded with the innocent. The flesh of the good and true rotted in the clasp of chains. The flames devoured the heroic, and in the name of the most merciful God, his children were exterminated with famine, sword, and fire. Over the wild waves of battle rose and fell the banner of Jesus Christ, for sixteen hundred years the robes of the church were red with innocent blood. 
the ingenuity of christians was exhausted in devising punishment severe enough to be inflicted upon other christians who honestly and sincerely differed with them upon any point whatever give any orthodox church the power and today they would punish heresy with whip and chain and fire as long as a church deemed a certain belief essential to salvation just so long it will kill and burn if it has the power why should the church pity a man whom her god hates why should she show mercy to a kind and noble heretic whom her god will burn in eternal fire why should a christian be better than his god it is impossible for the imagination to conceive of a greater atrocity than has been perpetrated by the church let it be remembered that all churches have persecuted heretics to the extent of their power every nerve in the human body capable of pain has been sought out and touched by the church toleration has increased only when and where the power of the church has diminished from augustine until now the spirit of the christian has remained the same there has been the same intolerance the same undying hatred of all who think for themselves the same determination to crush out of the human brain all knowledge inconsistent with the ignorant creed every church pretends that it has a revelation from god and that this revelation must be given to the people through the church that the church acts through its priests and that ordinary mortals must be content with a revelation not from god but from the church had the people submitted to this preposterous claim of course there could have been but one church and that church never could have advanced it might have retrograded because it is not necessary to think or investigate in order to forget without heresy there could have been no progress the highest type of the orthodox christian does not forget neither does he learn he neither advances nor recedes he is a living fossil embedded in that rock called faith he makes no effort to better his condition because all his strength is exhausted in keeping other people from improving theirs the supreme desire of his heart is to force all others to adopt his creed and in order to accomplish this object he denounces all kinds of free thinking as a crime and this crime he calls heresy when he had the power heresy was the most terrible and formidable of words it meant confiscation exile imprisonment torture and death in those days the cross and rack were inseparable companions across the open bible lay the sword and faggot not content with burning such heretics as were alive they even tried the dead in order that the church might rob their wives and children 
the property of all heretics was confiscated, and on this account they charged the dead with being heretical, indicted as it were their dust, to the end that the church might clutch the bread of orphans. Learned divines discussed propriety of tearing out the tongues of heretics before they were burned, and the general opinion was that this ought to be done, so that the heretics should not be able, by uttering blasphemies, to shock the Christians who were burning them. With a mixture of ferocity and Christianity, the priests insisted that heretics ought to be burned at a slow fire, giving as a reason the more time was given them for repentance. No wonder that Jesus Christ said, I came not to bring peace but a sword. Every priest regarded himself as the agent of God. He answered all questions by authority, and to treat him with disrespect was an insult offered to God. No one was asked to think, but all were commanded to obey. In 1208 the Inquisition was established. Seven years afterward, the Fourth Council of the Lateran enjoined all kings and rulers to swear an oath that they would exterminate heretics from their dominions. The sword of the church was unsheathed, and the world was at the mercy of ignorant and infuriated priests whose eyes feasted upon the agonies they inflicted. Acting as they believed or pretended to believe under the command of God, stimulated by the hope of infinite reward in another world, hating heretics with every drop of their Bastille blood, savage beyond description, merciless beyond conception, these infamous priests, in a kind of frenzied joy, leaped upon the helpless victims of their rage. They crushed their bones in iron boots, tore their quivering flesh with iron hooks and pinchers, cut off their lips and eyelids, pulled out their nails, and into the bleeding quick thrust needles, tore out their tongues, extinguished their eyes, stretched them upon racks, flayed them alive, crucified them with their head downward, exposed them to wild beasts, burned them at the stake, mocked their cries and groans, ravished their wives, robbed their children, and then prayed God to finish the holy work in hell. Millions upon millions were sacrificed upon the altars of bigotry. The Catholic burned the Lutheran, the Lutheran burned the Catholic, the Episcopalian tortured the Presbyterian, the Presbyterian tortured the Episcopalian. Every denomination killed all it could of every other, and each Christian felt it duty bound to exterminate every other Christian who denied the smallest fraction of his creed. In the reign of Henry the Eighth, that pious and moral founder of the Apostolic Episcopal Church, there was passed by the Parliament of England an act entitled an act for abolishing of diversity of opinion. And in this act was set forth what a good Christian was obliged to believe. First, 
that in the sacrament was the real body and blood of Jesus Christ. Second, that the body and blood of Jesus Christ was in the bread, and the blood and body of Jesus Christ was in the wine. Third, that priests should not marry. Fourth, that vows of chastity were of perpetual obligation. Fifth, that private masses ought to be continued. And sixth, that auricular confession to a priest must be maintained. This creed was made by law in order that all men might know just what to believe by simply reading the statute. The church hated to see the people wearing out their brains in thinking upon these subjects. It was thought far better that a creed should be made by Parliament, so that whatever might be lacking in evidence might be made up in force. The punishment for denying the first article was death by fire. For the denial of any other article, imprisonment, and for the second offense, death. Your attention is called to these six articles established during the reign of Henry the Eighth, and by the Church of England, simply because not one of these articles is believed by that Church today. If the law then made by the Church could be enforced now, every Episcopalian would be burned at the stake. Similar laws were passed in most Christian countries, as all Orthodox churches firmly believed that mankind could be legislated into heaven. According to the creed of every church, slavery leads to heaven, liberty leads to hell. It was claimed that God had founded the church, and that to deny the authority of the church was to be a traitor to God, and consequently an ally of the devil. To torture and destroy one of the soldiers of Satan was a duty no good Christian cared to neglect. Nothing can be sweeter than to earn the gratitude of God by killing your own enemies. Such a mingling of profit and revenge, of heaven for yourself, and damnation for those you dislike is a temptation that your ordinary Christian never resists. According to the theologians, God, the Father of us all, wrote a letter to his children. The children have always differed somewhat as to the meaning of this letter. In consequence of those honest differences, these brothers began to cut out each other's hearts. In every land where this letter from God has been read, the children to whom and for whom it was written have been filled with hatred and malice. They have imprisoned and murdered each other and the wives and children of each other. In the name of God every possible crime has been committed. Every conceivable outrage has been perpetrated. Brave men, tender and loving women, beautiful girls, prattling babes, have been exterminated in the name of Jesus Christ. For more than fifty generations the church has carried the black flag. Her vengeance has been measured only by her power. During all these years of infamy no heretic has ever been forgiven. 
with the heart of a fiend she has hated with the clutch of avarice she has grasped with the jaws of a dragon she has devoured pitiless as famine merciless as fire with the conscience of a serpent such is the history of the church of god i do not say and i do not believe that christians are as bad as their creeds in spite of church and dogma there have been millions and millions of men and women true to the loftiest and most generous promptings of the human heart they have been true to their convictions and with a self-denial and fortitude excelled by none have labored and suffered for the salvation of men imbued with the spirit of self-sacrifice believing that by personal effort they could rescue at least a few souls from the infinite shadow of hell they have cheerfully endured every hardship and scorned danger and death and yet notwithstanding all this they believed that honest error was a crime they knew that the bible so declared and they believed that all unbelievers would be eternally lost they believed that religion was of god and all heresy of the devil they killed heretics in defense of their own souls and the souls of their children they killed them because according to their idea they were enemies of god and because the bible teaches that the blood of the unbeliever is a most acceptable sacrifice to heaven nature never prompted a loving mother to throw her child into the ganges nature never prompted men to exterminate each other for a difference of opinion concerning the baptism of infants these crimes have been produced by religions filled with all that is illogical cruel and hideous these religions were produced for the most part by ignorance tyranny and hypocrisy under the impression that the infinite ruler and creator of the universe had commanded the destruction of heretics and infidels the church perpetrated all these crimes men and women have been burned for thinking that there was but one god that there was none that the holy ghost is younger than god that god was somewhat older than his son for insisting that good works will save a man without faith that faith will do without good works for declaring that a sweet babe will not be barred eternally because its parents failed to have its head wet by a priest for speaking of god as though he had a nose for denying that Christ was his own father, for contending that three persons rightly added together make more than one, for believing in purgatory, for denying the reality of hell, for pretending that priests can forgive sins, for preaching that God is an essence, for denying that which is rode through the air on sticks for doubting the total depravity of the human heart, for laughing at irresistible grace, predestination, and particular redemption, for denying that good bread could be made of the body of a dead man, for pretending that the Pope was not managing this world for God, and in place of God, for disputing the efficacy of a vicarious atonement. 
for thinking that the Virgin Mary was born like other people, for thinking that a man's rib was hardly sufficient to make a good-sized woman, for denying that God used his finger for a pin, for asserting that prayers are not answered, that diseases are not set to punish unbelief, for denying the authority of the Bible, for having a Bible in their possession, for attending Mass, and for refusing to attend, for wearing a surplice, for carrying a cross, and for refusing, for being a Catholic, and for being a Protestant, for being an Episcopalian, a Presbyterian, a Baptist, and for being a Quaker. In short, every virtue has been a crime, and every crime a virtue. The church has burned honesty and rewarded hypocrisy, and all this she did because it was commanded by a book, a book that men had been taught implicitly to believe long before they knew one word that was in it. They had been taught that to doubt the truth of this book, to examine it even, was a crime of such enormity that it could not be forgiven, either in this world or in the next. The Bible was a real persecutor. The Bible burned heretics, built dungeons, founded the Inquisition, and trampled upon all the liberties of men. How long, oh, how long will mankind worship a book? How long will they grovel in the dust before the ignorant legends of the barbaric past? How long, oh, how long will they pursue phantoms in a darkness deeper than death? Unfortunately for the world, about the beginning of the sixteenth century, a man by the name of Gerard Chauvin was married to Jean Lefranc, and still more unfortunately for the world, the fruit of this marriage was a son called John Chauvin, who afterward became famous as John Calvin, the founder of the Presbyterian Church. This man forged five fetters for the brain. These fetters he called points, that is to say, predestination, particular redemption, total depravity, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. About the neck of each follower he put a collar, bristling with these five iron points. The presence of all these points on the collar is still the test of orthodoxy in the church he founded. This man, when in the flush of youth, was elected to the office of preacher in Geneva. He at once, in union with Farrell, drew up a condensed statement of the Presbyterian doctrine, and all the citizens of Geneva, on pain of banishment, were compelled to take an oath that they believed this statement. Of this proceeding, Calvin very innocently remarked that it produced great satisfaction. A man by the name of Caroli had the audacity to dispute with Calvin. For this outrage he was banished. To show you what great subjects occupied the attention of Calvin, it is only necessary to state that he furiously discussed the question as to whether the sacramental bread should be leavened or unleavened. He drew up laws regulating the cut of the citizens' clothes, and prescribed their diet, and all whose garments were not in the Calvin fashion were refused the sacrament. 
At last, the people, becoming tired of this petty theological tyranny, banished Calvin. In a few years, however, he was recalled and received with great enthusiasm. After this, he was supreme, and the will of Calvin became the law of Geneva. Under the benign administration of Calvin, James Gruet was beheaded, because he had written some profane verses. The slightest word against Calvin or his absurd doctrine was punished as a crime. In 1553 a man was tried at Vienne by the Catholic Church for heresy. He was convicted and sentenced to death by burning. It was his good fortune to escape. Pursued by the sleuth hounds of intolerance, he fled to Geneva for protection. A dove flying from the hawks sought safety in the nest of a vulture. This fugitive from the cruelty of Rome asked shelter from John Calvin, who had written a book in favor of religious toleration. Servetus had forgotten that this book was written by Calvin when in the minority, that it was written in weakness to be forgotten in power, that it was produced by fear instead of principle. He did not know that Calvin had caused his arrest at Vienne in France, and had sent a copy of his work which was claimed to be blasphemous to the archbishop. He did not then know that the Protestant Calvin was acting as one of the detectives of the Catholic Church, and had been instrumental in procuring his conviction for heresy. Ignorant of all this unspeakable infamy, he put himself in the power of this very Calvin. The maker of the Presbyterian creed caused the fugitive Servetus to be arrested for blasphemy. He was tried. Calvin was his accuser. He was convicted and condemned to death by fire. On the morning of the fatal day Calvin saw him, and Servetus, the victim, asked forgiveness of Calvin, the murderer, for anything he might have said that had wounded his feelings. Servetus was bound to the stake. The faggots were lighted. The wind carried the flames somewhat away from his body, so that he slowly roasted for hours. Vainly he implored a speedy death, at last the flame climbed around his form. Through smoke and fire his murderers saw a white, heroic face, and there they watched until a man became a charred and shriveled mass. Liberty was banished from Geneva, and nothing but Presbyterianism was left. Honor, justice, mercy, reason, and charity were all exiled. But the five points of predestination, particular redemption, irresistible grace, total depravity, and the certain perseverance of the saints remained instead. Calvin founded a little theocracy in Geneva, modeled after the Old Testament, and succeeded in erecting the most detestable government that ever existed, except the one from which it was copied. Against all this intolerance one man, a minister, raised his voice. The name of this man should never be forgotten. It was Castelio. This brave man had the goodness and the courage to declare the innocence of honest error. He was the first of the so-called reformers to take this noble ground. I wish I had the genius to pay a fitting tribute to his memory. 
Perhaps it would be impossible to pay him a grander compliment than to say, Castellio was in all things the opposite of Calvin. To plead for the right of individual judgment was considered a crime, and Castellio was driven from Geneva by John Calvin. By him he was denounced as a child of the devil, as a dog of Satan, as a beast from hell, as one who, by this horrid blasphemy of the innocence of honest error, crucified Christ afresh, and by him he was pursued until rescued by the hand of death. Upon the name of Castellio, Calvin heaved every epithet, until his malice was satisfied, and his imagination exhausted. It is impossible to conceive how human nature can become so frightfully perverted as to pursue a fellow man with the malignity of a fiend, simply because he is good, just, and generous. Calvin was of a pallid, bloodless complexion, thin, sickly, irritable, gloomy, impatient, egotistic, tyrannical, heartless, and infamous. He was a strange compound of revengeful morality, malicious forgiveness, ferocious charity, egotistic humility, and a kind of hellish justice. In other words, he was as near like the God of the Old Testament as his health permitted. The best thing, however, about the Presbyterians of Geneva was that they denied the power of the Pope. And the best thing about the Pope was that he was not a Presbyterian. End of section 18. This is a LibriVox recording, read for you by Ted DeLorme, on July 8th, 2009, in Fort Mill, South Carolina.